0: Hello everybody, welcome back to the show. My guest today is me. To celebrate 400 episodes of Modern Wisdom, I wanted to do something special and decided on breaking down some of my favorite lessons, insights, and quotes from the last three and a half years running the show. Today, expect to learn why perfectionism is procrastination masquerading as quality control, Seth Godin's best advice for beating imposter syndrome, The biggest lessons I took from Jordan Peterson, how Ryan Long can predict the future of the internet, why framing is everything, Morgan Housel's best investment advice, why I'm adamant that Johnny Wilkinson has taken loads of ayahuasca, how to keep promises to yourself, and much more. I have to say it's really meaningful to hit... 400 episodes while i'm out here in texas which is you know pretty much the podcasting center of the universe and i'm getting to meet tons of people i'm having conversations with guys and girls that listen to the show out here and all of this growth has been because of you supporting the show so if you have listened or tuned in or shared it with friends or supported me in whatever way you can over the last few years a big thank you very, very much. It's incredibly meaningful to me. I adore doing this and it feels like we're just getting started. It definitely feels like there's an awful lot of headroom for Modern Wisdom still to take up. And um, yeah, roll on episode 500. I will be posting a list of all of these lessons on the Modern Wisdom Locals community. So if you want to go and check that out, head to modernwisdom.locals.com. You can join over 1500 other people who all listen to the show and think about the same things that you do modernwisdom.locals.com In other news, this episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens and their brand new AG1. One scoop of Athletic Greens contains 75 vitamins, minerals and whole food sourced ingredients, including a multivitamin, multimineral, pre- and probiotic, green superfood blend, and more that all work together to fill the nutritional gaps in your diet, increase energy and focus, aid with digestion, and support a healthy immune system, all without the need to take multiple products or pills. I'm out here in America and I've got them to ship it to me because I'm pretty sure that I'm going to fall to pieces if I don't have athletic greens every day. You are not getting enough fruit and veg in your diet and you know it, even if you're a vegan or a vegetarian you probably could do with some extra micronutrients. And this is the easiest way to just bolster whatever it is that you're eating, all the good work that you're doing with your diet. Athletic Greens will help to make that even better. It's lifestyle-friendly, whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free, and it contains less than one gram of sugar without compromising on taste. On top of that, you can get a 60-day money-back guarantee, which means that you can buy it and try it for 59 days. And if you do not like it, they will give you your money back, no questions asked and they are offering a year's free supply of vitamin D, five free travel packs, free pots, shakers, and more if you go to athleticgreens.com slash modernwisdom. That's athleticgreens.com slash modernwisdom, a year's free supply of vitamin D, five free travel packs, free pots, free shakers, and that 60-day money-back guarantee. Go and upgrade your nutrition game today. In other, other news, this episode is brought to you by the Six Minute Diary. Another thing that I've brought out to America with me, I've only brought one physical book and it's my Six Minute Diary. It's a simple and science-backed gratitude journal for a happier and more fulfilled life. More than one and a half million people have used it across the planet. It's recommended by psychologists and therapists all over the world using the proven principles of positive psychology to help you live your life more consciously and well. Self-care and mindfulness isn't easy unless you have a format to follow. They've turned leading research into an easy-to-use daily journal, three minutes in the morning, three minutes at night, using the proven practices of positive psychology to help improve your mental health and wellness. There is no reason not to get this. You can get 15% discount by going to bit.ly slash diarywisdom, that's bitly dot L-Y diarywisdom, and using the code MW15 at checkout, which means that you can have a six-month diary to use at the morning, and at night, for less than £20. I think it's £18.50 in total. Uh, Also, this is only available in the UK. I'm trying to get them to sort shipping out to America. Sorry, America people, it's not available yet. But if you're in the UK, you need to get this. It's an awesome present. If you're looking for stuff to get someone for Christmas or birthdays that are coming up, it's perfect. Six months of science-backed gratitude journaling, three minutes in the morning, three minutes at night, bit.ly slash diary wisdom and MW15 for a big fat 15% discount. But now, it's time for the wise and very wonderful me. Hello everyone, welcome back. It is the 400th episode, the big 400. Zero zero. And to celebrate I thought that I would give you some of my favorite lessons from the last nearly four years of doing the show. Four years sounds like a lot. It, it is quite a lot. I definitely didn't think when we did the first episode in my office with a friend who was going to row the Atlantic naked that we would have done 400 episodes only three and a half years later. It worked out that there's been five million hours of Modern Wisdom content watched and listened to over the last three and a half years, which is pretty crazy. Uh, So thank you to everyone who tunes in, who listens, who shares the episodes with friends, who messages me and sends nice things to Video Guy Dean or supports the show in whatever way you do. Uh, It's very, very appreciated. There is nothing that I would rather do at 6pm most weekday evenings than speak to whoever the hell it is, a porn star or a psychologist or a philosopher or a sports person or me on my own, how it's going to be this evening. And I'm going to go through, like I said, some of the best lessons that I've taken away from the episode. Some of them are from guests, stuff that we brought up on the show, and others are part of during my research for people that were coming on. And then some are sort of common themes that I've noticed throughout all of the episodes. So let's get into it. Number one. You cannot overestimate the unimportance of practically everything. This is a quote from John Maxwell, but it reminds me of Greg McKeown's work with essentialism. Essentialism basically reminds us that almost everything that we spend our time doing, they're trivial nothings. They don't contribute to our higher order goals. They don't actually push us towards achieving the thing that we genuinely want to. And in the modern world, we have far more opportunities to do things than time to do them and far more things to do than things that we care about, which means that we constantly get distracted. We, get, we stray from the path of the thing that we're here to do, the thing that is genuinely our highest point of contribution that we genuinely care about. We just get Fritted away, distracted by shiny objects. And you can fragment your life into so many tiny little slivers that you never actually get any meaningful work done. You never progress toward the thing that you genuinely care about. I'm pretty certain, in fact, I'm 100% certain, that the biggest productivity strategy in the modern world is just getting ruthlessly clear about what it is that you want to do and then culling everything that doesn't contribute to it. What is the goal that you want to achieve? And then what are all of the things that don't contribute to that, that you don't have to do? Just stop doing those. Like, what's the prize that you win for being the person that keeps your Instagram notifications at zero all the time? Or what's the prize that you win for being the fastest person to reply in a group chat? Does that move you toward the thing that you genuinely want in life? Probably not. So why are you doing it? You cannot overestimate the unimportance of practically everything. It also reminds us to stop overthinking. We believe that so many of the things that we decide we're going to obsess over are really, really crucial to what it is that we've got going on, and they probably don't matter. And in a week's time, you're probably not going to remember the thing that you were frantically concerned about right now. So I really like that. I really like the idea of trying to remember that no matter what happens, you're probably going to be fine. I mean, you're sat or stood here now listening to this, so you haven't met your demise just yet. Have faith that you're probably going to be okay in the future too. All right, next one. Uh, perfectionism is procrastination masquerading as quality control. So this is, this is me quoting me, but Tiago Forte on the show probably nearly three years ago now, uh, he tweeted something that got me thinking about this. A paradoxical thing but people who consistently choose the most high leverage activity is that efforts have a rough-edged half-assed quality because polishing things to perfection is a low leverage activity. Polishing things to perfection is a low leverage activity. What Tiago is talking about here is when you're trying to get better at something and iterate on your craft, whether that be content creation or writing or playing music or releasing a new business or starting a new relationship or whatever it is, People will use procrastination, uh, use perfectionism as a form of procrastination, that they don't want to begin doing something until they're absolutely perfect on the brand name or the logo or the timing or whatever. And it's stopping you from learning by doing. If you get something out into the world, you will learn by iterating and reflecting on the process. Okay, I did a thing. How did it go? Was it good? Was it bad? Did I find it effective? How can I improve the next time? That is so much more worthwhile. You're going to benefit so much more from that than you are from getting it from 90% to 93% quality. And it's a low leverage activity because so many people get caught up trying to go from 90 to 93. In that time, you could have done two 90s or three 90s. You could have continued to release these bits of work. And someone replied to that tweet and said, perfectionism is a nice way to hide from shipping at a pace Necessary to find what works. So that's talking about this iteration process. You need to work out how to be good at the thing that you're trying to do. And you don't learn that by trying to be perfect. You learn that by being good enough and delivering something to the market or to an audience or to whoever it is that you're trying to reach. That's how you do it. You do it by actually getting out there and shipping your work. Next up, you do not serve people from your cup, you serve them from the saucer which overflows around your cup. So this was the first episode that I did with Aubrey Marcus, and he blew my mind on that. I knew he had this big podcast and this successful book and stuff, and I'd listened to him, and I thought, yeah, he's, he's good, but I, I wasn't really sure on just what it was going to be like in real person. And, uh, yeah, he really, really impressed me. The guy's the real deal. He's a very, very aligned, awakened human, and um, you do not serve people from your cup. You serve them from the saucer which overflows around your cup. This is Jordan Peterson again, right? Clean your room, sort yourself out before you go out and you try to fix the world. But what I like about it is that it makes us, it reminds us that by contributing to our own sense of well-being, by doing something meaningful that we care about, that we know is going to make us a better person, that everyone else comes along for the ride. If you work very, very hard on yourself, you're probably going to improve the lives of the people that are around you. There was a, uh, a concept that I thought about when we were discussing that that just made me think how many people have tried to pour from a half full cup, how many people are trying to fix the people that are around them when they've got these gaping holes in their own mindset, in their own worldview, in their own daily routine same as being in a, an airplane, right? The masks come down. You have to put your mask on first before you help someone else. Because if you're suffocating, you're of little use to everyone. Now, that being said, this isn't an argument for uh, ruthless, selfish, uh, single-minded capitalism just for you. It doesn't mean that you have to wait to be perfect before you can try and help other people, but that the best way to serve others is to make sure that you're sorted first. I think that's the main lesson to take away. Next up, Do people love you for who you are or for what you do? So this is James Smith uh, asked himself this question when he was off his face on mushrooms in Bondi Beach somewhere listening to Hans Zimmer. And it's a really, really good question. Do people love you for who you are or for what you do? And it's a difficult one to answer because we are what we do, right? Like when you meet someone, you say, hi, what's your name? What do you do? So tell tell me about you. What do you do? What you do is almost more important. It's seen as more important than who you are in the modern world. It is your identity. And do people love you for who you are or for what you do is a question that forces us to work out, am I I being loved for what value I add to the world or intrinsically for the sort of person that I am? When I spoke to Aubrey about this and asked him this question, he turned it around and said, do you love you for who you are or for what you do? Because what we're asking the world to do is love us for who we are, right? Not for what we do. Meanwhile, we choose to love ourselves for what we do, not for who we are. The last business interaction that we had, the last sports game that we played, the last date that we went on, the last interaction with our kid or partner or boss or whatever, that is what determines our sense of self-worth for the next time up until the the next opportunity that we get to reset that, that's obviously, that's obviously wrong. We're judging ourselves on what we do, not who we are. We feel like our self-worth is contingent on the work that we put out into the world. We're asking the world to do something that we haven't done yet. So yeah, do people love you for who you are or for what you do? It's just an awesome question. And it really reminds us to sort of focus on the, the things that matter most, which is you sorting yourself first. Next up, Douglas Murray. When the barbarians are at the door, we'll be debating about what gender they are. So (laughs) I heard him say this at a live spectator event. And his point is that there are genuine evil people out there and that the West has become quite decadent and quite caught up in its uh, social justice, identity politics world. And if China comes a knocking or if there is a large global war, The fact that we have been caught up in the culture for a long time debating more trivial matters than war and genuine evil, Uh, we're not going to look very good. We're not going to, I don't think that anybody could look at the West at the moment and say that it's a strong, powerful, good role model, that it's cohesive, that people feel like they're pulling together. None of these things strike very true for me. Um, But that aside, like when the barbarians are at the door, we'll be debating about what gender they are, is quite a, a funny quote from Douglas. But what I tried to pull him up on the last time that we spoke was, I don't like the idea that smart minds are getting distracted by identity politics. So Douglas can say all he wants that we shouldn't be focused on these sorts of issues, but he gets brought he gets pulled into these sorts of discussions and so do andrew doyle and zuby and you know pick your center or right-leaning commentator that gets stuck into identity politics stuff those guys get tied up talking about it uh now whether or not they feel justified whether they feel like this is a, a real problem that we need to stop from occurring or else they're going to capture the culture and that's going to have real issues both sides are playing badly. So one side is baiting and the other side is responding. I appreciate that it's kind of like, oh, well, he did it first. I'm not going, I'm not going to let them win. So I, I understand why it's there. And don't get me wrong. I, you know, I see a libs of TikTok video and I think, oh, this is ridiculous. I should do a reaction video to that. But if we are genuinely concerned about the rise of China and Russia and misinformation and what's going to happen with, I mean, we've just had a pandemic that might have come out of a lab. Is this, not, is this not the time for us to try and focus on things that matter more? Um, so yeah, I, f- I feel like something needs to change in the culture on the right as well as on the left. So on the left, they need to stop focusing on mental woke identity politics stuff. But on the right, they need to stop treating, them, treating these news stories with quite as much respect and clout because it does uh, amplify the message of whatever craziness it is. Now, even if you're mocking it, that's fine. But I think there's been enough mocking of crazy stories from the left to have split tested the can we mock this out of existence uh, drug. It's not working. It, taking the piss out of inherently ridiculous and self contradictory identity politics videos isn't stopping them from happening. So there needs to be another approach. I genuinely think that ignorance isn't too bad of an idea. Um, And at the very least, the greatest minds of our time shouldn't have their time spent debating about whether men are men and women are women or not. There, There has to be something better that they should spend their time doing. You know, Douglas Murray's had a pretty long and illustrious reading, writing, and academic career, as far as I'm aware. I think Andrew Doyle went to some pretty prestigious universities, and Zuby also went to Oxford and these people are spending their time arguing on Twitter. Like I want them to be doing better things, and I also want people on the left to be doing better things. Because if you're a moderate leftist, and the <laughs> most well-promoted uh, individuals from your side of the aisle are these purple-haired libs of TikTok people, that that sucks as well. Like nobody should be supporting what these people are doing. But yeah, it's sort of like um, you should be bigger than it is maybe the question. I've got Douglas coming on. He's got a new book coming out in next year sometime, April, I think. Uh, So he'll be back on. So I'll ask him about this again. Next up, don't try to beat the market. Just dollar cost average into it. And this is Morgan Housel's uh, investment advice. So there's this story that Warren Buffett had a bet with a hedge fund manager. And he said, You can pick, I think it was with another person that could pick five different hedge funds and say, you can pick all of these. You can pick whichever hedge funds you want, see what their returns are over, I think about seven years, and I'm going to pick the S&P. And whoever gains the most between the S&P and any of these five hedge funds, they win. The S&P 500 won, which is the um, 500 biggest companies in the world, an aggregate of all of their changes in value. And... Morgan is a guy who spends a lot of time talking about finance and personal investing. Uh, He's got a book called The Psychology of Money, which is an awesome, awesome read that you should go and check out. It's part of the Modern Wisdom reading list, which you should go and get. uh, chriswillex.com slash books for a free list of 100 books that you should read before you die. And uh, yeah, Morgan says that most people try and beat the market when all that you need to do is track the market. So dollar cost averaging is setting up uh, an ISA or any sort of normal uh, stocks and shares savings account and just depositing a steady amount of money into it every single month. So yeah, sure, there's going to be movements up and down within the market. But over time, you're going to catch most of them at relatively all right points. Yeah, maybe you'll catch one when it's a little bit high and then it pulls back. And yeah, maybe you'll catch some when it's a little bit low and it pushes up. Over time, it'll average out, dollar cost averaging, and it just removes most of the complexity. I don't think, I certainly know that I don't have the mentality or the mindset to be a trader. I've tried it. I've tried picking stocks and fucking about an eToro. And man, it is, for anyone that is a trader that's listening, you are a psychopath inside because I don't understand how you can put up with watching Your net worth get ragged around at the mercy of the market. I'm just totally, totally not built for it. So, rather than that, the solution that I've gone for, which is what Morgan proposes, is to not try and beat the market. To just dollar cost average in. So just put money into a stocks and shares ISA, which is linked 100% to the S and P 500, and just do that every month. That's it. Just every month, same amount goes in. You don't have to think about it. You know that it's uh, barring some sort of catastrophe. And I mean, if the S&P 500 uh, crashes, there are far bigger problems than what's happened to your money. We're probably in the middle of some Mad Max post-apocalyptic nightmare world. Uh, So yes, that is probably the only investing advice that 80% of people probably need to know. Next up, consistency is even rarer than talent or enthusiasm. So this was... Just a common theme that I found throughout a lot of the episodes where I was speaking to people, again, partly for business and content creators, but also just for people that want to improve themselves or get good at anything. Lots of people find that they pick up a new sport or a new pursuit and they have a talent for it. They have a natural knack for whatever it is that they're doing. And other people also, when they start something new, find that they're enthusiastic about it. It's quite common. You know, it's basically every January 1st in the gym. You rock up and everyone's keen to do something. They've got these new New Year's resolutions. They're all enthusiastic. And some of those people will be talented. But how many of those people end up being consistent long-term? How many of those people do that thing over and over and over again, every few days or every, every week for years and years and years? Almost no one, because it's not sexy. It's not sexy and it's boring and you will lose talent Your talent will only get you so far very quickly after you do anything. You're going to be out of the pool of noobs and into the pool of other people who are as talented or maybe more talented than you are, who are as enthusiastic or maybe more enthusiastic than you are. And that's why consistency is the perfect competitive advantage because it's the best way to do what we were talking about earlier on, which is to leverage uh, shipping at a pace that allows you to know what works. You get to do a thing consistently, the market or your audience gives you feedback. You go, okay, well, right. got to get better at that. This has gone well. This has gone badly. We'll change it. And it's so rare that it's immediately going to separate you out from almost all of your competition. So this statistic about podcasts that 90% don't make it past episode three and of the that do, 90% don't make it past episode 20. So by making 21 podcasts, you're in the top 1% of all podcasters ever. And that's purely based on consistency. Can you create 21 podcasts? Okay, there you go. Top percentile podcaster. Why? Well, it's because consistency is fucking well rare. That's why. Loneliness is a kind of tax you have to pay to atone for a certain complexity of mind. This is Alain de Botton from the School of Life. Now, Alan, uh won't reply to my emails, or his assistant won't reply to my emails. So this is what he would have said um, had I have got him on the show. This is what he will say when I eventually get a hold of him and his little jumper, sit him down in a seat, and speak to him. Loneliness is a kind of tax you have to pay to atone for a certain complexity of mind. So the more unique you are, the fewer people are going to be like you, and the fewer people will get you and this means that it can suck right you can end up feeling a bit more lonely because it's harder to find people that you want to have a conversation with if your interests are perfect slap bang in the middle of the normal distribution of normal then everyone or the vast majority of people are going to agree to the match last night or fucking what happened on Hollyoaks or whatever you can tell that i'm really shit with pop culture um then there's going to be lots of people for you to find to speak to. The difference is that if you have, as you start to push out toward those ends of that distribution, there are fewer and fewer people who genuinely are like you. And it can cause us to be tempted to compromise who we are, right? We want to try and push ourselves right into the middle because we think, well, even if I'm not fully embracing me, at least there will be other people like me. So you'd rather be a persona in a crowd than yourself on your own. And I get this compulsion. I I genuinely do understand. But I think that the increase in depth of insight is worth the entry price that you pay. So you get to see the world in a different way to other people because you have this unique perspective. You have different interests. You have a slightly more complex mind. Then, yeah, you're going to feel things more deeply. It's both a blessing and a curse to feel everything so very deeply. You are going to. But also, it means that you get to see the world in a different way to other people. You will have a deeper insight. You will feel things in a more nuanced and subtle and high-fidelity way, which is pretty cool. I don't think that that's something that you should let go. Certainly not simply because you're struggling to find someone to connect with. So, And the other thing as well is that over time... I mean, this is the topic of my TED talk, basically. Um, TEDx talk. Not, Not TED. Didn't call... Um. Yeah, that weirdness and compromising yourself causes you to degrade your own virtue. It, It's not what people actually want in any case. People think that they want to be just like everyone else or people think that people want people that are just like everyone else, but they don't. They want people that are romantically unique and trailblazers that have odd idiosyncrasies and quirks that they can fall in love with. That's the people... Think about whoever it is that you admire in the world. You don't admire them because they're mind-numbingly normal because you know one of their views and you can accurately predict everything else that they believe because what stops you from loving somebody else that's the exact same as them the more unique that you are the fewer people are like you and that's a big thing to be proud of imposter syndrome is a feature not a bug of growing as a person so this was seth godin uh marketing hyper genius uh on the show start of this year maybe end of last year, and I asked him about imposter syndrome. And he said that why would you not feel imposter syndrome when you're doing something brand new that you've never done before, especially if it's maybe something that no one has ever done before. So we try and rid ourselves of imposter syndrome or ask why it's there. But what imposter syndrome is, is uh, an uncertainty in yourself around whether or not you can complete a particular task or achieve a goal or project or whatever that you've got in front of you. But if you've never done it before, then quite rightly, you've got imposter syndrome. It's an accurate representation of your uncertainty about whether or not you're going to be able to do the thing that you say that you're trying to do. So imposter syndrome isn't a bug, it's a feature. It's an accurate representation from your mind thinking, this is, I'm trailblazing some new ground here. I've never tried to lift this weight before. I've never tried to go out on a date with this type of person before. Whatever it is, like that's you just expanding your domain of competence. And if you think of it like, if you feel a little bit of imposter syndrome, if you feel a little bit of um, concern about whether or not you can complete the thing that's in front of you, what if you reframed that as a signal that you are doing work which is good, which is growing you as a person, if it means that you're in the proximal zone of development, just, just outside of your competence, what if you saw it as that? What if you saw it as a, 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 a line in the sand that you've crossed that lets you know that you're trying to do new things and that on the other side of this, you should have proof that, wow, look at my capabilities. Look at what I was able to do. That's new. I couldn't do that before. I didn't even know that I could do it before. I wasn't even sure that I could complete it. So yeah, imposter syndrome is a feature, not a bug of growing as a person. I really like that, that reframe. And um, it makes a lot of sense. If you haven't done something before, where's the fucking proof that you're going to be able to do it? Never lie, Jordan Peterson. So whether it's by omission or commission, lying degrades your virtue. Your internal sense of self-worth is keeping check, even if you aren't. Telling the truth is a superpower. It works for everything. Start being radically honest today your life will change. So this is one of the biggest changes I think I made between my 20s and my 30s was how much I value truth and how much I tried to focus on telling the truth, not because I was lying all the time, but just that it's easier sometimes. It's easier to feed people a convenient omission or to tell people what you think that they want to hear or to give a more i don't know a, a more acceptable form of an answer or whatever it is whatever it is that you're talking about right that was me for a very long time and the problem with that is that you can end up telling little fibs and and curbing off edges of yourself for so long that you genuinely don't know who you are anymore. And you have to scrape all of that away. If you want to try and find out your genuine opinion, your truth, your actual innermost logos that you need to speak forward, if you want to try and do that, you have to scrape away all of the stuff that you've piled on top of it. All of this muck and all of these layers and layers and layers of you being performative and saying what you think people want to hear. It's not very nice. Like that was that was the largest amount of self-work. That I still have to get through now, the biggest chunk of it was me working out who I genuinely am. I mean, that's hard enough on its own. We are a mystery to ourselves, it's a mystery to everybody, especially ourselves. And yeah, if you're if you're lying, you're not making that any easier. It's like you're already struggling to see the person that you are. You're already mostly a mystery. And now you're wearing a bunch of different outfits and trying on different opinions that you know aren't yours. So you're just further muddying the waters that you're trying to see through. So yeah, I mean, almost all of the people that I know that I really, really value in life are the ones that are incredibly truthful. And that doesn't mean that they'll um, not pull their punches. That doesn't mean that they won't say things in a... A charming or an empathetic or a caring way. I'm not saying that you need to be an, a brutal arsehole with everybody, but that with a little bit of charm and charisma uh, and care, you can deliver exactly what you yourself need to hear, what the people around you need to hear, whether it be at work, whether it's in a relationship, whether it's with your family, whether it's with friends you can be a really, really good influence on them because most people are just going to take the easy route out of whatever the conversation is. If there's something that if someone in your friend group, everybody knows that they need to stop drinking, but no one really wants to bring it up with them. That the fact that everybody knows it and nobody's saying it is exactly why you need to be the person that takes them to one side and says, hey man, I want to, should we why don't we have a chat about about how much you're drinking. Like, are you okay? Is there anything that I can do to help? I, I'm really concerned about you. Like, these are more compassionate sentences than "I'll leave him. He'll be fine." Nah, it doesn't really matter. You know, John. John's John's sweet. John's sweet. He just he likes to party. He likes the sesh. Nah, nah. You can be the person that says the thing that that person needs to hear. And if you are only friends, if, if the people around you are only accepting of you when you're lying, you need better friends. Shane Parrish, the wise of every generation discover the same truths. The wise of every generation discover the same truths. This was really cool because there's this sort of yearning for tradition that we have at the moment. Tim Stanley, a couple of weeks ago, he spoke about that. And it really does feel like so many of the solutions that we come upon are things that, you know, your parents would have told you. It's like that midwit meme, like the idiot, the idiot and the genius uh, arrive at the same place, and the midwit in the middle is the one that doesn't. It's like the uh, parent and you at your highest virtue, your highest wisdom, you arrive at the same thing, and then you in the middle is the one that's trying to overcomplicate everything. The, um, Tradition is a set of solutions for which we have forgotten the problems. Take the solution away, and often the problem comes back. So, so many times people are trying to reinvent the wheel. Okay, with relationships. Okay, we see rising divorce rates. So uh, maybe um, monogamous relationships are horseshit, and we should all just try polyamory and just fuck everyone. Um, yeah, I mean that's one. That's one solution, or. It could be that marriage is just a bit hard and we've now got technology that is throwing us to the lions with regards to novelty and distractibility. Um, And I mean, marriage rates are, are decreasing as well. The wives of every generation discover the same truths. There's been a lot of unlimited numbers of people that have thought about the biggest questions that plague all of us. Why do you think that in 2021, we're going to be able to immediately just come up with a brand new set of solutions for stuff. These have been split tested a lot, an awful lot. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people have been consumed by the same thoughts that you are every single day. Whatever it is that's concerning you, whatever it is that you're worried about, that belief that you have a a particularly unique problem that no one on the planet has ever faced before is almost certainly horse shit. And looking for solutions in the future or the present is probably a pretty bad idea. There's definitely someone that's come up with, that's faced what it is that you're struggling with. The wise of every generation discovering the same truths reminds us that if you look back, if you try and find a little bit of wisdom from the past, there's probably an answer already that the bleeding edge of internet culture can predict downfalls six to 12 months before most normies even realize that's from Ryan Long. Um, so Ryan's an interesting guy. He's this comedian dude that I had on the show, uh, earlier this year, and he's like quite a bro, kind of like, he's like 2021's version of American pie sort of. Comedian, used to be in this really famous ska band uh, in Canada, a like ska punk band, and he's still got that sort of punk rock thing going on with the hair and the nose ring, and he's, like, just super bro about everything, um, but I find he's cool. He's genuinely a cool guy in a way that I don't think I-, I could ever be, and his insight around the absolute bleeding edge of culture, like, he has his finger on the pulse some of the things that he says in the episode, if you go back and listen to it, he drops some names and he makes some just... What he takes for granted as part of culture, to me, seems like something that I've only glimpsed the very, very corner of. So he'll bring up the name of someone or he'll mention something about a person that he doesn't think is very cool or just a a, a passive put-down about some some content creator, whatever it might be. He does that so seamlessly Because to him, it's plainly obvious. But this person or whoever it is that he's talking about does it on loads of his other videos as well. These people are still riding high. So Dan Bilzerian was an example. If you looked at people like Phileon, who's an awesome YouTuber that you should check out, uh, I think maybe CoffeeZilla did some stuff on it. I think Tom Mc... Fucking Swedish-looking guy with a beard who does finance stuff. Tom somebody. Um those guys had done takedowns of Dan Bilzerian. They'd realized probably a year ago, 18 months ago or something like that, that Dan Bilzerian was kind of coming across like a bit of a man-child, that he was this, it was just weird. There was something just a little bit off. He hadn't positioned himself appropriately. And then look at what happened six to 12 months later. It turns out that he's sort of a bit of a charlatan who said that he owned this huge house and he didn't, he was renting it and his company's finances were in the toilet and it seemed like he was getting bailed out by his dad who had all of this money that he got in this dodgy way and blah, 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 blah. But if you had kept your ear to the ground on the right areas of the internet, you'd have been able to predict this 12 or 18 months in advance. And that's the uh, world that people like Ryan Kind of seem to be in now. That's not me saying that he's going to be fucking Cassandra, right? And that he's going to be able to predict absolutely everything that happens for the rest of time. I don't think that that's right. But the bleeding edge of internet culture is a pretty good window into the future. You know, here's a perfect example: Wall Street bets. I told the boys about Wall Street bets. It was me, me. I broke, I broke the Wall Street bets uh, story. me and Yusuf and Johnny were watching the Dankest Trades compilations on Wall Street Bets over a year ago. Before last summer, we were watching them, and that was when the I think the sub had <laughs> half a million people on it, something like that. Less than a million people that were members of their Reddit. Uh, and this is before GameStop. This is before the short squeeze. This is before AMC. This is before deep fucking value. Um, like before all of that before it became a national news story and i don't know how many people let me see how many people are in wall street bets now Wall Street, wall street bets how many people are in this subreddit now 11.1 million 11.1 fucking million people in this so we'd seen this a long 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 time ago and um I I thought this is fucking cool. Like it was being, videos were being made by people like Kamikaze Cash who are, they, they know what they're talking about. They're really, they spend a lot of time on the internet. They understand internet culture. They understand meme culture and they know the sort of things that are going to go viral, like culturally viral virality. And sure enough, you roll the clock forward and the correct sequence of circumstances occurs. And it, Channel what ten x is it's part of it's on news I mean that deep fucking value guy didn't he give I swear he gave a a talk to Congress or something or some some committee meeting or something in America um, yeah, bleeding edge of the internet culture can predict downfalls six to twelve months before most normies even realize it your framing is everything, so this is Dr. Benjamin Hardy uh, and his new book. Uh, the gap and the gain kind of talks about this. So a good example that I use for framing is feeling like you just finished a workout in the gym is amazing. So you go in, this is what people actually go for, right? They go into the gym to make their lungs bleed, to work hard, to do spinning class or yoga or weightlifting or CrossFit or whatever it is. They go in because the end of the workout feels so good. When they're lying on the floor in a pool of sweat or when they're walking out and they get to high-five their friends, like those endorphins, that is precisely why they go there. So feeling like you just finished a workout in the gym is amazing. But if you had the exact same experience of finishing a workout while you were sat spontaneously in traffic, you'd be terrified. Oh, hang on, it's the exact same sensation. So why does one make you feel great when you're in the gym and the other one make you feel terrified that you're having some sort of aneurysm or heart attack? Well, it's because of framing. It's because the reason that you are prepared to put up with the sweating and the heat and the discomfort and all that stuff when you're in the gym is you know it's in service of something good because you've just done a bunch of stuff that's led you up to believe that that's good. Whereas when you're sat in the car, you think, what's going on? Am I dying? Is this what it feels like to be abducted by aliens? Like, You don't understand what's happening because your framing has changed. So if you learn to control how you frame situations, you can actually alter your perspective, you can not only alter your perspective, but you can also alter what that situation even means to you. So in The Gap and the Game, which is Ben Hardy's new book, which you should get, it's quite short, only 160 pages, uh, you are always going to have a problem with framing if you compare yourself against how you could or should have performed. Comparing yourself against what you could or should have done is like trying to race toward the horizon. No matter how hard you work, you're always going to come up short. So that's another case of framing, okay? You can look at, you do a thing. When you do the thing, you can compare yourself with how far away from your potential you are or how far from your starting point you are, okay? One is the gap versus potential. One is the gain from starting point. Now, if you compare yourself against where you could have been, you are never, ever going to get there. Maybe you're going to glimpse it a couple of times in your life, but even professional athletes don't perform at the 100% of their perfect potential. Like They make mistakes as well. We see it every single day. And that's their professional athletes. That's their job. They're employed to be as perfect as as possible at one very specific narrow domain. So what hope have you got of giving a talk at work or going on a date or having a conversation with a partner or whatever it might have been Whatever pursuit it is that you're going after, if you frame the situation as, you idiot, look at how much better you could have been or should have been. Well, yeah, obviously, obviously that's going to be the case because I'm never going to hit 100%. But how far have I come? Look at how different this particular performance was versus the last one. And even if it's gone backwards, you can say, okay, well, that's another rep in the tank. That's another ship of a product. I've shipped it again. That's another iteration that I can learn from. It's another opportunity for me to get better. The difference in terms of framing gap and gain is really, really powerful. And I'm glad that Ben has now given a name to it. The gap and the gains is an awesome one. I don't know whether uh, the episode might not be out yet or it might have just come out. But if it's not out, it'll be out soon. Uh, this is the weird and wonderful world of uh, scheduling podcasts in advance. Uh, don't practice what you do not want to become. So this is a Jordan Peterson quote uh that made me think about an episode I did with James Clear. The James Clear episode was 2 years ago, maybe even more. I did it I did it in America in Redlands, which is just inland from uh LA. And I propped my laptop up on two tables in the hotel room where I was staying and I'd tried to light myself with a desk lamp that kept on uh, turning off during the episode. So um, yeah, don't practice what you do not want to become, which is a guy that balances his laptop on two tables. Um, Every action you take is a vote for the kind of person you're going to be in the future. If you do a thing today, it's more likely that you'll do it tomorrow. This includes negative self-talk and a lack of compassion for yourself. Treat your habits with requisite care. So Don't practice what you do not want to become reminds us that every single time that you do a thing, you make doing that thing more likely again in future. If you do or don't break your diet, then tomorrow it's going to be more likely that you do or don't break your diet. If you do or don't go to the gym, if you do or don't have a difficult conversation with your partner, every single. if you do or don't pick up your phone when you don't need to or um, break that promise that you made to yourself by not using social media before a particular time or pressing the snooze button, all of these things are contributing to a future where you are going to be the sort of person that is more likely to do the thing that you've just done. That's how habits work. There's a story about a woman, a, a girl who was horse riding when she was a kid, and her parents were quite strict, and she didn't want to get caught smoking when she turned into a teenager, but her parents didn't follow her to horse uh, horse riding, so her and her friends would go out horse riding and they'd smoke while they were on the horses. And then she'd come back and she'd mucked the horses out or whatever. So she'd mask the smell. Uh, and then she stops. She gets pregnant when she's a bit young uh, and has a kid. And then 10 or 12 years later decides, oh, well, I'm I'm going to take my child horse riding because it was something beautiful. And it's something that my mom introduced me to. And this will be really good. 10 or 12 years, she hasn't had a cigarette, sits on a horse Wants to have a cigarette again instantly. She stopped for 12 years, but sitting on the horse was the trigger that she wanted a cigarette and that craving still existed. Why? Well, it's because the way that myelin sheaths lay down, the way that our brains work, is that it's really quite hard to atrophy connections in the brain once they're made. If you have your phone always on one side of your desk, as soon as you put your phone back there, even if you didn't have it for 10 years, you're going to be able to pick it up because those wirings still exist in your brain. So one thing that you can do, mentioned uh, phone use a lot here, to try and pattern interrupt the um, way that your brain sees this is to just switch some things around. So an easy one is to, if you're a guy and you, where you put your phone in pockets, put your phone in the other pocket and put your wallet, let's say that you've got phone in right pocket and wallet in left, if you swap it around, it's going to pattern interrupt that natural thing that you've got in your mind where you just put your hand in your pocket and you pull your phone out. That's going to change almost instantly. So that's one way to fix it, to try and change little routes and routines and pattern interrupt what your brain is expecting to happen, rearranging the uh, menu on your phone, moving different icons around in different places is another really good one because more than anything, when you get your phone out, you know your brain understands where particular triggers are on the phone. It's not as if you're pressing the icons. It's as if there's a cue, craving, and reward that's already embedded into your thumb via your brain, and your thumb is just following that little routine. But If you break the routine, and now fucking Barclays Banking app is where Facebook used to be, and you press on that, you, it's going to stop you. So adding in these extra layers of friction and pattern interrupting that is a really good thing to do. I actually considered—I mean, this would be total sacrilege—but I'd actually considered getting an an Android phone. i could barely say it. Getting an Android phone because I knew that I wouldn't be able to use the same uh, modes of uh, phone use um, that I'm used to on an iPhone. It's going to be so—it's going to be a complete departure, right? the operating system, this would be an awesome thing for phone manufacturers to do to offer different types of operating system. So imagine if iOS had 10 different ways that the interface could look, not just the way that the icons are positioned, but even the way that you navigate around the phone and what the gestures mean and how you swipe perhaps. If you were able to totally pattern break what it was that you were doing. Yeah, you have the same device in your hand, but the way that you use it has to be completely different. That would be so good because it would basically be like starting again. But yeah, I mean, it it scares me. It it honestly does scare me. Some of the bad habits that we pick up, they're they're with us for the rest of our lives. Now we can replace them with other good habits, but getting rid of habits that you've already created is really, really difficult. I mean, I asked uh, Anna Lemke this, that dopamine researcher, only the other week and said, you know, can you kind of get rid of addictions? And she gave, she kind of gave a bit of a diplomatic answer. Um, It seems like you can definitely overcome addictions, but there's always kind of going to be something there. So yeah, don't practice what you do not want to become is a simple sense, but it's oddly existential. Um, Another thing as well is I'm really glad that phones weren't around even sooner because embedding these particular habits when you're younger is significantly easier. Think about how easy it was to learn stuff when you were in school, right? Like, Or languages, there's some stats that I saw about how much harder it is to learn a language, I think after the age of 13, or something like that. So your brain is just primed for taking in information and learning habits, right, when you're younger. But most kids have got iPads or phones and I am so glad if I think about how challenging I find technology use now, uh, compared with how long I've been using it and then think, okay, now double the amount of time that you've been using an iPhone from, I think I probably got one when I was about 25. Yeah, it'd be more than double. That's terrifying. That's scary. Uh, Corey Allen, you are not your thoughts. So Corey is a meditation teacher and a producer, music producer, and he makes binaural beats. He makes some shit-hot binaural beats for meditation and for deep focus and stuff. You should check those out if you're looking for some new ones. The voice that speaks in your head is not you. You are the one who hears it speak. Don't identify with what your mind says any more than you identify with what someone on the street says. This is one of the most liberating truths to know. So with this, it's reminding us that You don't know what you're going to think next. You don't know what you're going to think next. If you don't know what you're going to think next, how can you say that the voice in your head is you? It's just another element. Think about the fact when you've lost your keys and you say to yourself, uh, Where are my keys? Who the fuck are you talking to? Genuinely, who the actual fuck are you talking to? I've lost my keys. Where are my keys? There's only you inside of your head, is there not? Well, no. If there's someone speaking, then there has to be a listener. And the person that's speaking is just this weird amalgamation of sleep deprivation and hunger and excess caffeine and limbic hijack and thought loops and what you've just seen on Twitter and that repetitive song that's on the radio that you can't get rid of. You are not your thoughts. So when you hear something, you hear a particular piece of monologue that's in your head that you're saying. You wouldn't identify if someone on the street just accused you of being that thing. So genuinely ask yourself, why do you choose to identify with what your head says? Do you have faith in your own word? Maybe. Okay, well, how many times have you thought a thing that didn't turn out to be true? You are your most untrustworthy friend. The voice that's inside of your head is batting. It's got the worst average in history. Imagine all of the things that you've thought that didn't turn out to be true. All of the concerns that you had, all the worries, all of the fears and the overthinking and the absolute certainties about whatever catastrophe was going to occur or absolute certainties about whatever success was going to occur and it didn't. If you were friends with that person, (laughs) you would think that they were the biggest gobshite on planet. You'd be like, What Dude, all that you do is spew misinformation at me on a daily basis. What are you talking about? But because the voice comes from inside of us, we trust it. You are not your thoughts. It was really good from Corey. should go back and listen to an episode I did with him on binaural beats uh, back end of last year because he splices the binaural beats in between the episodes. So we're talking about different delta waves and theta waves and beta waves and stuff. And um, he cuts them in. It was beautiful. It was really cool for him to do that. Um, action is the antidote to anxiety. Action is the antidote to anxiety. This was Rich Divney, who was a Navy SEAL, and he founded the SEAL Mind Gym, which was the uh, sort of mental optimization wing of the Navy SEALs. Up until then, I don't think that the SEALs had really focused on Optimizing or maximizing mental performance—they'd obviously spent a lot of time doing physical stuff, but they hadn't really optimized it mentally. Uh, so, action is the antidote to anxiety. You're not afraid of the future when you're moving yourself toward it. Do something, anything—you'll feel better. This is a realization that I've had as well. When I feel bad, when I'm finding myself with a low mood, it's often. I can manage to assuage that feeling by just doing something that moves me towards my goals, that moves me a bit closer toward the life that I want to have, towards the project that I genuinely care about. You're not afraid of the future when you're moving yourself toward it. It's the helplessness that comes with uh, stagnation. You have this sense, this nagging sense in the back of your head that you should be doing a thing, that you could be spending this time when you feel a little bit anxious or you feel a little bit down and you're a little bit guilty because look at all of this time that I'm wasting just reveling in my own pity and then if you can do anything if you can take a tiny tiny little step let's say that you're feeling a bit bad, a bit bad today and you know that going for a walk would make you feel better taking the dog out going to the gym doing whatever the tiniest, tiniest little step that you can take toward doing that, even going to the gym to do a push-up would be such a huge accomplishment because it is infinitely more than you were about to do. And once you're there, you know that you're going to do more. So action as the antidote to anxiety. Is a, it's a really good thing to remember. Most of the anxiety that we suffer with comes about because we're not, we're not in control or we don't feel like we're in control of the future. Right? We're concerned about what's coming next. Because we're not controlling the speed and the direction that we move toward it. So try and take a little bit of control. What do we got next? Uh, joy has to be found today, not tomorrow. So this is. Uh, Johnny Wilkinson went on the high performance podcast um, and Damien Hughes and the other guy whose name escapes me. Sorry. Um, fuck man, Johnny Wilkinson sounds like. Johnny Wilkinson sounds like a woke Aubrey Marcus. He sounds like someone that's done a hundred ayahuasca sessions. I'd love to find out if he's done any psychedelics. He's very—he's all about spiritual enlightenment and being awakened and in the present. You think this guy, this guy tackled people to grass for a living? He kicked—he kicked, he kicked a, an egg-shaped ball and tackled people to the ground. Uh, I didn't expect to see it from Johnny Wilkinson, but it was it was really, really good. He's talking about this story where he's with his daughter and they're playing basketball at a fun fair and he's treating it like some mindfulness exercise. There is no fun fair. There is no world. There is no tomorrow. There is no uh, uh, sweets to get after this. There is simply the next shot. And he's talking about this degree of presence that he has when he's playing basketball with his daughter. Uh, But Naval via eric jorgensen who came on the show uh, sort of really drives this home with if you can't be happy with a coffee you won't be happy with a yacht choose to find joy in today it's there waiting for you this is just the classic looking past today in the hopes of being happy tomorrow thing you're not going to be uh, become happy you can only be happy there is no becoming happy there is just being happy What do you mean? If you're not going to be happy right now with the things that are going on, what makes you think that tomorrow is going to be the case? And remember, if we don't want to practice what we don't want to become, you're already putting yourself in a habit of putting off happiness until tomorrow. So what happens when tomorrow comes? Well, you're already in the habit of putting off happiness until tomorrow. So when it's tomorrow, then why not put it off until tomorrow? And when it's tomorrow, why not? And so on and so on. Joy has to be found today not tomorrow. If you can't be happy with a coffee, you won't be happy with a yacht. Choose to find joy in today. It's there waiting for you. Everything that you do, whether it's cleaning the dishes or speaking to a friend, the way that you frame it, your framing is everything. The way that you frame it as, yeah, I've got to do this job or this task that I'm not too sure about. So a good example, right? Tomorrow, um, I'm helping Darren, business partner, uh, who is launching a bar. Everyone should go to 2020 in newcastle it's on the big market opposite uh, the points it's going to be awesome they've got pizza that's double the size of Domino's, and they do craft coffee and all sorts of stuff 2020 i'll put the link there'll be a website somewhere that'll come up um tomorrow he needs to put some of the upholstery shit in there whatever it's sofas and, and chairs and heavy stuff so we're going to spend most of tomorrow lifting heavy things around like it's not going to be particularly fun I can find a bit of joy in doing that tomorrow and I'm going to have to remind myself while my legs are aching and I'm sweating and I'm shouting at him because he's not turning it the right way but that's an opportunity for me to spend a day with my best mate and business partner helping him create a project that he really really cares about but if I spent that day thinking oh I can't wait for it to be over so that I can go and see the fireworks at night time we've got this fireworks show on that well I've just wasted all of these opportunities, every single one of these opportunities to be joyful. Don't don't get me wrong, right? I'm absolutely saying this to myself. This is, I am the perfect exemplar of someone that does look past the now, just slightly peers over the shoulder of now, even when we think that we are being present. We just look past it in a slight way. But yeah, if you can't be happy with a the coffee, then you won't be happy with a yacht. If you can enjoy the little things that you've got, whether it be trying to be as present and awakened as possible whilst playing basketball with your daughter or whatever else it is lifting furniture with your business partner i think that's a good place to start keep promises to yourself your faith in your own word is vital if you can't trust yourself you're making a chaotic world even more difficult to navigate build up your self-trust with small promises over time you will be able to take on bigger challenges This, again, was a big reflection for me from the self-work that I did between my 20s and my 30s, that because I had played a persona a lot, and I'd sort of been this version of me that had maybe degraded my uh, trust in myself, uh, my belief in my own honesty, that I didn't believe that I was going to do the things that I said I was going to do. I mean, first off, uh, I was believing that the voice in my head was me, so... I'd already, I'd already fucked up once, but I didn't have faith that the promises I made to myself were going to be completed. So imagine that you have a friend that you invite out for lunch a lot. And every time you invite this friend out, they always turn up late. Every single fucking time, always turning up late. Or sometimes don't show up at all. Total, just most unreliable friend in the world. Over time, you're going to stop inviting that friend out for dinner because you do not believe that they're actually going to show up. Well, you are that friend to yourself. You have a counter in the back of your mind. Even if you don't think that you're keeping track of all of the times that you've broken a promise to yourself, there is a part of you that does. It degrades your value. Every time that you decide to break a promise to yourself, it degrades your own inner sense of virtue. If you're the sort of person, if you're like me, and I think that in this regard, a lot of people that listen to modern wisdom are, you genuinely care about trying to be a good person. You genuinely have a conscience and you want to feel virtuous and, and you know, like your actions match up with your intentions and that you're leaving the world in a better place than you found it. This means that you need to be able to have faith in yourself. If you do not trust that you are going to do the things that you say that you're going to do, what is there for you? what what firm place have you got to stand upon like how are you going to be able to predict the future you are the person over whom you have the most control in the world you only have marginal control over yourself but you're the person that you have the most control over and if you can't trust that you will do the things that you said that you were going to do to yourself by your own volition under your own control what fucking hope is there what hope is there for you to be able to make a relationship with another person work when you can't trust yourself to do the things that you said that you were going to do. Should I do one more? I'll do one more. I'll treat you to one more. I was going to try and get some Brian Rose quotes from London real, but he blocked me. So I'll do that. Mm. Okay. Most problems are easily fixed. 90% of issues can be solved by good sleep, a glass of water, a gym session, a walk outdoors, or a chat with a friend. So this was Johan Hari that kind of got me onto this, and his book Lost Connections about depression is a really good read, and it reminds us that most of the recent history for depression was seen as a, depression was classified as an imbalance of chemicals in the brain, whereas Johan changes that around and says part of it is imbalances in the brain, but Other parts of it are unmet needs by your life. So if you're not getting up regularly, having a good diet, getting exercise, having sunlight, you don't have a job that you feel like you contribute to, you don't have a purpose in life, you don't have friends and connections. If you don't have these things, like what fucking hope have you got of being happy? These are the fundamental things that you require as a human being just to exist in a moderately optimal way. Forget fucking optimal. This is like basic requirements. If you're not doing these things, of course you're. How how could you be happy? To be happy, whilst not getting that stuff sorted, you you would have to be some sort of one of those people that's been hit in the head with a rock, and now their their brain's just dumping serotonin into them relentlessly, just unloading serotonin, just in this blissed out state. Most problems can be easily fixed by doing something that changes your current state. So for me, going for a walk or going to the gym. They That is, the difference that I feel after I go and do those things is otherworldly. And most problems that you have aren't that big. Like, yes, you have big problems, and big problems probably, (laughs) I'm not sure if a glass of water is going to fix your big problems, but 90% of your problems, or more than that, 99% of your problems aren't big problems. They're just an awkward conversation that you had with that person at work that's really, really riled you up. Okay? well, why not try going to the gym? Why not try and work out some aggression that way? Why not get a good night's sleep? Are you underslept? Has this pissed you off because you're really badly slept or because you've got tons of nervous energy because you haven't trained for ages or because you're underhydrated, or because you haven't seen sunlight because it's the middle of winter and you haven't, you haven't been outside and got any fresh air today or because you haven't spoken to a friend and you've been neurotic. You've been constantly replaying whatever situation it is. I can't believe that bitch said that to me. Ninety percent of problems can be solved by a good sleep, a glass of water, a gym session, a walk outdoors, or a chat with a friend so when you feel bad when there's something that's playing on your mind that's annoying you, just pulling that pin the same way as the mindfulness gap from meditation causes you to try and just take a little breath in between stimulus and response right something happens and you you just take a little breath in between because you think, I don't need to respond immediately. I have the opportunity to choose how I want to respond. The same thing can occur with this. Let's say that there's a problem that you have. You have the opportunity without, before you descend into neurotic rumination, you can go, all right, let's see if I can do something to make this feel a little bit better. Let's see if I can go for a walk. Or before I actually try and respond to this, let's see if I can get a good night's sleep. And that's why I liked Johan's book. I'm, I i I know that he got criticized. I, well, I heard that he got criticized uh, in The Guardian for, I'm going to guess that they would have said he was like downplaying depression, demedicalizing it, perhaps underplaying the way that uh, hormonal or neurochemical imbalance in the brain and stuff. But what I liked about his book was that it puts the power back in the hands of the person that's suffering with the low mood the best takeaway from uh, Johan's book was that it means that you are the person that's in control. Lost Connections repurposes the um, domain of control from being outside of you to being inside of you. There is something that you can do about the way that you feel. That's so much more fucking empowering than, oh, good luck with that, imbalance of hormones in the brain mate hope you get hit with a rock at the right angle or there you go there's some ssris crack on without erections for the rest of your life like fuck that so yeah giving yourself the best opportunity to be happy by doing the things in your life that create the fundamental foundation for happiness is a good way to begin and the same things happen there's a catastrophe that occurs something goes wrong okay well, can I do something that's going to make me feel better? I know that these things, maybe for you it's different. Maybe you hate walking and you want to do stretching or yoga or something. But most of those are good places to start. And if you do all of them, I'm pretty certain that almost all almost all problems, except for the big ones, are going to get fixed. Look, thank you. That is some lessons. I don't know how many I did. Uh, that is some lessons from 400 episodes of the podcast and nearly four years. Uh, I will be in Austin by the time that you watch this, which is also going to be exciting. I'm going to be recording while I'm out there. And yeah, I mean, I started doing three episodes a week at the beginning of the pandemic because I kind of made a promise to you guys that I I wanted to um, give you more of a sense of community and connection and more stuff to distract you from what was being a fairly shitty year. Uh, and don't practice what you do not want to become i've ended up uh embedding the habit that if i do any less than three a week now um it doesn't feel right there's something wrong so um the show is going to continue at this uh, unrelenting pace for quite a while longer um i really really appreciate everybody that listens and tunes in and shares the episodes and does whatever and joins the locals the locals community we've got uh going that'll be up here, or It might be on the end card. If you want to join and speak to other people that are just like you and talk about the episodes and connect with me and connect with the rest of the audience, you can go and join there. Right now, that'll end up here, maybe. Um, but yeah, thank you. Roll on episode 500. Thank you very much for tuning in. Don't forget that you can get a 60-day money-back guarantee five free travel packs, free pots, shakers, and a year's free supply of vitamin D by going to athleticgreens.com slash modernwisdom. And you can get 15% off my favorite six-minute diary by going to bit.ly slash diarywisdom. That's bit.ly slash diarywisdom and MW15 at checkout. I'll see you next time.